Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is a transnational indigenous scholar, scientist, and community advocate based in the Pacific Northwest. She has an interdisciplinary academic background ranging from marine sciences to forestry. Her work is grounded in her indigenous cultures and ways of knowing. She advocates for climate, energy, and environmental justice through her scientific and community work and strongly believes that indigenous sciences can heal our indigenous lands. She's the author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, and we'll be spending probably the lion's share of our conversation on that work. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you? Good and yourself. Um, thank you for having me here today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about, about this conversation. I actually finished the book a couple of weeks ago, and I've been returning to it, despite the fact having read it for the purposes of, of this conversation. But it's a book that I, I do believe should be on the bookshelf, on the reading list of any number of folks who are doing work around the things that we've kind of discussed in your intro, whether it is general social justice work, whether it is work rooted in climate, sustainability, environmentalism, spirituality in many ways. It's a, it's a book that, to me, touched on so many different important things and is the definition of interdisciplinary, which I think is essential. So I want to thank you for, for having done this, done this kind of work. So my editorial notwithstanding, I want to really start with the book and give you an opportunity to kind of explain your relationship to the work and in particular, the title, Fresh Banana Leaves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you for your kind words. Um, the reason why I kind of decided to do the title Fresh Banana Leaves is because it kind of reminds me of a story my dad shared with me. So, you know, as you know, or, but you know, people who haven't read the book don't, you know, not, don't know. My father was a child soldier during the Central American Civil War that took place, you know, started in the 1960s, kind of became a war in the 80s and then kind of ended in the 2000s, late 1990s. So during that war, it was kind of like a resistance movement or you know, movement basically against oppressive government structures, especially these structures that were impacting and negatively oppressing Black and Indigenous peoples of Central America, including Afro-Indigenous peoples. And as a result of that, the government kind of received aid from, you know, the United States and Canada because they were kind of saying that, you know, the Indigenous communities wanted to spread communism in Central America. So when, you know, you hear the word communism, you know, the United States and Canada and all, all these other powerful nations kind of support those countries, right, especially that government. So because they were targeting a lot of our men, we didn't have enough adults, right, or men to be integrated into the war. So they started recruiting children, you know, as, as young as 10 or 9. And my father was 11 during that time. So three years into the war, he was in his encampment, right? Because he was in his Gideon encampment and he saw how bombs, you know, his encampment was bombarded because, you know, obviously the government had access to bombs. And one of the first things that he decided to do was kind of seek refuge under a banana tree. And this was, this was the banana tree that he had built a relationship with, that he used to play and kind of use as a sanctuary to escape the harsh realities that he was enduring as a child. And when he saw a bomb, kind of drop on this banana tree, right? And it's kind of hard sometimes to explain it in, you know, colonial languages because that kind of shows the relationship that as Indigenous peoples we have with nature. You know, he saw how the leaves kind of wrapped the bomb to prevent it from igniting. And I think that one of the premises and teachings that he shared and kind of, 
you know, raised me under was that, you know, nature protects you as long as you protect nature. And my father had protected this tree. This tree had protected him. And as a result, I decided to call it fresh banana leaves in honor of those leaves that kind of wrapped that bomb and kind of saved my father and gave him a fresh start once he sought refuge outside of his country. It's a, a story that's woven throughout the book, which is why I wanted to start there. And I think it also tells a lot about, or, or at least sparks our thinking about displacement and what is part of a place and what becomes a part of a place. Because you, you make a, a notation in the book as you tell the story that bananas, for example, are not indigenous to the area but they've been transported in there. And so their their displacement is part of an ongoing displacement story. So it, it seems like this, this notion plays into a lot of how your, your thinking is woven throughout the book. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about those relationship of displacement and guest as it pertains to land and, and stewardship types of relationships. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, you know, has built a lot of momentum or gather a lot of attention is land acknowledgements, right? But I think that one of the premises of land acknowledgements is that as, you know, speakers, especially white speakers, tend to acknowledge the lands that they're currently, you know, gathering or settling on, but they fail to recognize that between land, as you were mentioning, there's also this type of relationships that we have to build with the land And I think that it kind of foregrounds my grandmother's teaching that she always reminded me, given that through my maternal side, my mom was the only one displaced as I was growing up because, you know, everyone else was in our ancestral lands in Oaxaca. She always reminded me that anywhere I walked in, I was an unwelcome guest because land for us kind of represents our homes. It represents our spirituality, represents our identity. And as a result of that, I had to build not just relationships with the land, but also the indigenous communities whose lands I was living on in order to be welcomed into their homes. And I think that with displacement, we often forget that, you know, we have to build relationships with the land and indigenous peoples. And also we see how displacement kind of has built in xenophobia, anti-Blackness in many Indigenous communities and other communities that do not kind of see the relationships that we have by being displaced from our lands. And I think that oftentimes when we talk about displacement, it's, and it's something not that I, you know, kind of discuss in this book in depth, but we forget that sometimes it's not that we decide that we want to leave our lands, it's that we are forced to leave our lands. And like in this case, banana trees, you know, the, the banana plants did not decide to leave, you know, Southeast Asia. They were introduced into the Americas during colonization, especially when international agricultural corporations kind of bought a lot of our lands through these land grabs and they introduced plantations where they were using forced labor slavery to kind of promote these plantations and also use, you know, indigenous knowledges to ensure that they will generate this capitalism that at the end of the day benefited the owners and not necessarily the people who were working the land, who were working these plantations. So I think that displacement kind of foregrounds the relationships that many Africans, Afro-Indigenous, you know, our Black relatives also had with the land, because oftentimes we forget, even in indigeneity discourses, that, you know, during slavery, they were not taught how to steward or caretake for the land. This is something that they already knew. And I think that, you know, we see how in settler colonialism, that was taken advantage of. So I think that displacement kind of really, you know, foregrounds the indigeneity that many of us who have been displaced kind of intersect, right, and have those connections with. You know, I'm, I'm glad, like, the terminology has started to come up very early in the conversation, right? Because you mentioned settler colonialism, right? And again, as, as someone who's spent time in sustainable circles and, and had conversations in, in those worlds at, at various levels, right? Very seldom do terms like that come up mm-hmm. when we're when we're talking about sustainability or environmentalism. And so I'm, I'm using, like you said at the beginning, like words that we all recognize through the whiteness of them, right? Mm-hmm. And when you introduce in these conversations very specifically the, the notion of settler colonialism and how 
you know, whiteness operates as a framework in, in these spaces. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to unpack that a little bit more, because like you said, it is more than naming a thing, right? That's saying, okay, we are existing on this particular land. How do we, or how in your thinking, do we start to center the very whiteness of these frameworks in order to confront them and create and, and maybe harken back to something that is that is more in line with your thinking? Yeah, so oftentimes, you know, working in sustainability groups or environmental justice, climate justice, there is this notion that humans are separated from nature. And we see that with the relationships that, you know, people in power and and positionalities have, especially when it comes to plants, right? So for instance, going back to how banana trees are invasive species, but they have kind of become our relatives, a lot of these invasive plants come from Europe, right? So they have that European connection that many of these white scientists, white sustainability practitioners should um, see as their relatives or should kind of ground their relationships with those plants because they come from that ancestry that they embody. But because there is this disconnection and Western beliefs, you know, even the ways that we build our relationships with nature are very foregrounded in sustainability or environmental justice. When we talk about invasive species, they're often used as negatively, you know, they're labeled negatively because, I mean, they do impact our native environments. But we see how white scientists or white sustainability practitioners have lost the, like, their connection to the land. And that's why, you know, when we do restoration projects, they aggressively remove the weeds. They do not, you know, build that spiritual connection with them, even though these are their displaced relatives because they they come from Europe. And I think that that kind of, you know, roots itself in the way that we practice restoration or environmental justice, especially as long as, you know, Western ideologies are centered because we kind of continue to separate humans from nature, even though you know, many indigenous communities know that that's really creating more problems than solutions. And I think that by unpacking the fact that these Western ideologies have allowed white people to, you know, kind of remove themselves from nature, it's important for them to, before they try to do social justice work or racial justice work, to unpack that and reflect on their positionality so that they can reclaim their relationships with nature and not add more burdens to the communities they're trying to help, especially Black and Indigenous communities as it pertains to how, you know, many of us are trying to also protect our children and do work for our future generations. And, you know, I want to continue to lean into that a little bit more. And I'm going to project some things that may not be, of course, how you see things, right? Um, so I want to more get your reflection on that, right? Where oftentimes when I see the the work or the history of indigenous communities and societies brought up, it's in certain white circles, it's with this sort of like mythological reverence mm-hmm. as if indigenous communities are no are no longer here in a way. And I see a a lack of, what's the right word to use? Inclusion is such a corny word, but there's a lack of inclusion, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. one, in really having Indigenous people as part of these conversations. And that irritates me. And so Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in how you confront that, given the fact that in the book you make a point that, you know, Indigenous history is not just around, in my notes, you might've had more points, but you said vulnerability, resistance, and resilience, that it's more than those things. And it seems like in these circles, as part of that mythology, it's very centered in those things, Mm -hmm. right? So how do we confront that and move beyond it in in your thinking, to whatever extent you agree with my little hypothesis there? (laughs) Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And I think that, you know, that kind of goes back to the stereotype of the ecological noble savage where, you know, where we were these mystical creatures that were prancing and dancing with nature. And then, you know, we're continue and regarded as though we don't exist. 
And I think that, you know, that's one of the main reasons why I like to use indigenous science as opposed to traditional ecological knowledge, because my, from my experiences, you know, being in environmental sciences, climate sciences or sustainability, whenever I bring up the word traditional ecological knowledge, kind of, you know, it's because of the Western ways of thinking white people kind of fixate on the word traditional and they continue to regard to our knowledges as though it's something in the past and we no longer embody. And I think that like Western sciences, our knowledges have adapted, right? Because they have to, they had to, especially when colonization introduced, you know, many bad things, but sometimes some good things like advanced technology that we can now use to, you know, also address climate justice from our community's lenses. And I think that because indigeneity or indigenous peoples have been packaged to be seen as areas of expertise rather than, you know, experts ourselves or research subjects rather than, you know, researchers ourselves. There's still this notion that you can study indigenous communities, but not uplift indigenous communities. And I think that that's one of the struggles that I currently have, especially, you know, when it pertains to white scientists who have indigenous communities or traditional ecological knowledge as their areas of expertise, because we know for, you know, for a fact that studying our communities kind of has supported many white scholars in getting access to many positions in academia that continue to grant them privilege, that continue to grant them grants. And I think that it's something that I wish more white scholars will also reflect on to, you know, why is it that we no longer are centering actual indigenous peoples when it pertains to, you know, doing sustainability projects, doing environmental justice research, when in reality, it's something that, you know, our communities are still doing on the ground, but yet when it comes to passing the mic, right, white scholars and scientists are not really comfortable doing that because, you know, they still have to unpackage a lot of their white privilege. And with that, obviously, as you might know, there's this white fragility that comes, right? There's this projection of their white insecurities that we now have to, bur- you know, take the burden on because they're projecting on us when in reality, you know, they should be reflecting or probably projecting on each other, especially if like you're talking about there's these circles where, you know, everyone has the same thoughts and beliefs, right? But who is there to question that? And oftentimes they put that work on us, right? On Black and Indigenous peoples, where in reality it should be the work of our allies to do that as well. And, you know, what you just said just sparked thought. And so I'm going to jump ahead, right? Like I had this (laughs) other track going, but I'm going to put a brief pause on it because you you really touched on something that that really kind of jumped out when I was reading the book, because you make this point that indigenous knowledge is place-based, right? And and so I put like quotes around that because I want to give you an opportunity to explain that because it was very much in a contrast to this idea of lived experience versus attribution, right? Like you you gave some examples of where you always had to like justify things that you knew through your life, whereas others might not have in, in a different set of circumstances. So all of that is is so tied to me, this ideas of academy, right? When you start to talk about science and if you label something science by some degree, then it's has a merit. You know, if you say something is traditional, to use that language, then it's seen as not as meaningful, right? So that led me here a little quicker than I wanted to get to it, but it's perfect, right? Like, again, this, this, I want you to like take us through this indigenous knowledge as place-based and then how you've dealt with or managed through this lived experience versus attribution in an academic perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And I think that that's something that I continue to struggle, right? Because in many of my research groups or spaces that I navigate within academia, oftentimes I'm asked questions that pertain to all indigenous communities. And I think that people need to understand, right, that indigeneity, indigenous knowledge is very place-based, right? So the indigenous knowledge that my community upholds in Central America is different than the indigenous knowledge many clans in Africa uphold to, right?
because it is all determined on our environments, our local landscapes. But yet, because in Western knowledge and in Western science, it's easier to consume treating a group of people as a monolith. Then that's why we are still treated as though we're not different, right? That we're one subgroup of, you know, indigenous peoples. And as a result, X, Y, and C must apply to all of us. And I think that that also shows sometimes the lack of effort from white scholars or white scientists to build reciprocal relationships with our communities, right? Where it's easier for them to write a grant that kind of centers indigenous knowledge as just one thing, as opposed to it being place-based, right? And that's how Western ways of thinking work. So they actually, it actually benefits them. And I think that with that, we're failing to see the intersectionalities and the uniqueness that we all have to offer. And, you know, in despite of, you know, oftentimes when I start my presentations, I always ask the audience, can one Indigenous person speak for all Indigenous peoples, right? And most of them say no. But when it comes to following that response with action, at the end of presentations, I'm still asked questions as though all Indigenous peoples are the same, right? So for instance, like, what do Indigenous peoples think about X, Y, and Z when reality, you know, it kind of centers the discussions on, yeah, I can speak on my lived experiences. And even sometimes I cannot speak on behalf of all my, you know, my communities because, you know, we're all different, right? That's why we have disagreements. That's why we have intergenerational knowledges. Sometimes our elders hold you know, to different beliefs than the younger generation does. But I think that, you know, because Indigenous communities are more complex than white communities, especially the white communities as, you know, as they're deemed in American society, right? In American meaning the United States, they kind of failed to recognize that. And I think that it's important, right, to recognize Indigenous communities and all communities of colors as complex and not treat them as though they all fit in one box, right? And I think that that we see that across many communities of color, whether it be Asian studies, Black studies, right, where there's people who come into these departments, you know, in academia and feel as though by taking one class, they're going to understand the Black experience or the Asian experience, when in reality, it's more complex than something that can be packaged in a box. So I hope, you know, that kind of allows people to reflect, but there's, you know, based on my experiences, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in order for us to reach that point. Absolutely. And, you know, you full circled me back to the top of my sheet, which is um, to, talk, <laughs> to talk about complexity, right? Because you you go to great efforts to, you know, weave these stories in and tell a present story as well as a past story in a way that I think there's going to be some people who will read this book and they won't know a lot of this stuff, yeah. right? Like it will just be like, damn, I didn't know that happened, right? And, and so, <laughs> um, and all of us experience that to some degree. I'm not saying yeah. that people who could have known this stuff might still obviously will learn new new things. And one of the things that really jumped out to me was when you when you spend some time talking about, you know, family journeys, you know, your dad's story, your place in indigenous culture, and then moving to the United States, and then this coming to to grips or to understanding of the sort of racial and cultural hierarchy in the United States as compared to the rest of the Americas, right? This sort of mm -hmm. Latin reality where I, I think you you put it as a duality between the oppressed and the oppressor, you know? And again, that's not something that usually you see parsed through, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to, again, give you an opportunity to kind of take us through a little bit of that journey and thinking and how it impacts how you do this work. Yeah, so it's always been interesting, right? Because as you mentioned, when you are placed under this categories of being Hispanic or Latinx or Latino or Latinx, right? Because there's so many, we have to embody, you know, our non-binary folks and relatives as well. There's this notion that, for instance, if you're Mexican, oftentimes people kind of build on that discourse, right? That if you're Mexican, you're mixed with white, indigenous, and black. When in reality, these racial categories still exist 
and persist in Mexico and the rest of Latin America, right? For instance, our Afro-Mexicans or indigenous relatives were not recognized by the Mexican census until 2015, 2017. So that's not that long ago. Many indigenous pueblos, they have kind of created their, you know, kind of like their National Indigenous Council because, you know, they're still seeing how they're, they're still continue to be oppressed, right? So oftentimes when people kind of embody these discourses, it's because they're uncomfortable with grappling onto the whiteness that they embody coming from these countries, right? Because oftentimes when you come from Latin America, no matter how you look, you're considered a person of color within the United States racial categories. And as a result of that, right, it's kind of undergoing the same thing that, you know, we see white Americans facing with, which is white fragility, kind of like the white guilt, right? So I think that for, for Latin America, it's important to uplift Black and Indigenous peoples, especially those who still have, you know, their community relationships. And that's not to negate that, yes, yes, there was this history where, you know, they were trying to purify the races, right? So they had a lot of white people kind of, you know, marry Black and Indigenous peoples. But I guess that when we focus on, you know, uplifting mestizaje, we fail to recognize and uplift Black and Indigenous peoples who are still facing oppression in Latin America. We see that even in how our Haitian relatives, right, because the Caribbean is also considered Latin America, are treated in the immigration discourse as opposed to, you know, mestizos that are coming from Latin America. And I think that oftentimes we try to apply racial categories that exist in the United States to other countries when that doesn't align, right? Because in, for instance, in Mexico, being mestizo is actually, a, you know, its own race, right? Because and then if you're indigenous, that's another racial category. But yet, you know, in the United States, people are like, oh, well, I'm indigenous and Black, but they fail to recognize that Black and indigenous peoples in Latin America continue to be displaced, continue to face anti-Blackness, anti-indigeneity, settler colonialism. And as a result, we see that you know, our Black and Indigenous relatives, especially those who are community leaders, are murdered by the same people in these countries because whiteness looks different in Latin America, yet there's these, like, faces, what is it, like, kind of like this romanticization around blood quantum that people are trying to apply to Latin America as though everybody from Latin America is Black, Indigenous, and white, when in reality is not the case, right? And that's used to continue to silence actual Black and Indigenous peoples who are trying to advocate for their rights, right? And we see that every day, like for instance, at the border, how Indigenous peoples are treated as opposed to mestizos, how Black people are treated in, you know, in comparison to mestizos or those who look more white, right? Who embody whiteness as it pertains to Latin America. So I think that we do an injustice when we're trying to in a way, apply those racial categories from the United States to the rest of Latin America because they're completely different and they lead to more harm than, you know, actually good for our, our Black and Indigenous relatives. And, you know, that leads me into talking about, like, belonging and, and how we find comfort in a particular space, whether that is a community space, an actual physical geographical space, and it sounds like there's so much shifting identities mm-hmm. that have to happen as a part of the the settler colonial project. Like, how do we, you know, navigate through putting those two things together? The, the need to belong, the need to find comfort in space while also being categorized yeah. so much through settler colonialism. Yeah, and I think that's a, you know, great question because oftentimes, you know, the way that Indigenous pueblos and communities operate in Latin America is not through tribal enrollment, it's not through blood quantum. So it kind of is more in relation to the relationships that we uphold and the responsibilities that we still maintain to be Indigenous, right? So being Indigenous in Latin America is different than being Indigenous in the United States or Canada. And I think that that has to do with the fact that, you know, we're still facing oppression. We're still facing systems that continue to, you know, amplify disparities that exist in our communities. We saw that kind of being uplifted during the pandemic, right? But I think that, you know, there is this 
this space where, you know, people should be having those conversations and questioning where do they belong, right? Because as you were mentioning, white supremacy has made us kind of put ourselves in these racial categories, right? And I think that oftentimes, you know, it's not a matter of just saying, waking up one day and saying, well, because I'm from Latin America, I'm Black, Indigenous, and white, right? It's not that. It's kind of questioning our intentions and also building relationships and taking action to ensure that we can get rid of white supremacy back in our countries, right? And I think that that kind of goes back to the phrase that I put in the book where there's this nuances of being the oppressor and the oppressed, right? We sometimes kind of focus more on the spaces that oppress us and not necessarily on the spaces where we hold that power and are the oppressors ourselves, right? And I think that by doing that work in the latter, right, in the second box where sometimes we have the role of the oppressor, it will allow us to identify ways that we can undo that oppression, especially in the United States, right? Because we have xenophobia, we have this anti-immigrant narrative that continues to be opposed within the United States. And in order for us to truly dismantle it, we also kind of have to dismantle the work of, you know, that we uphold as the oppressor, right? For instance, in many indigenous communities, one of the things that I say is that we have to undo anti-Blackness because that's that gives us the role of the oppressor, right? Especially when we're discrediting our Afro-Indigenous communities, when there's anti-Blackness being upheld in many of our communities. And I think that with those dualities, it allows us to understand the work that we have to do and the work that has to be done to uplift our communities and also center our healing. And I think that, you know, hopefully those were some of the questions that I put in the book for readers to reflect on. But you still have, again, like you're going back to what we discussed, you know, of like Indigenous peoples being romanticized. There's still people who pick up this book thinking that it's a guidebook on how to heal Indigenous landscapes through Indigenous science. And I think that if they, you know, read the book and still take that message from the book, then they kind of failed to understand the messages that I was putting in the book, right? Where Indigenous knowledges are place-based and there's more to healing our landscapes than, you know, kind of consuming, you know, indigeneity or Indigenous peoples as, you know, these knowledges that we can learn through a book. So, you know, it kind of brings everything together. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I and I think even in, in that, in the last part of that answer, when you mentioned consuming, yeah. right? Like so much of of what I think we're trying to parse through is because of the consumption model, mm -hmm. the consumer model that is so built into the capitalist model, right? The model of empire, you know? So how does indigenous sciences work as a counter to the current capitalist and empire type of model, which would, would say that all of these things are made to be commoditized, right? To be mm -hmm. sold yeah. to the highest bidder. How do we avoid that? <laughs> or, at least, or at least have a counter narrative against it. Yeah. And thank you for bringing up, you know, that consumption, because I think it ties back to the, to, you know, the discussions we were just having of what it means to be the oppressor and the oppressed, right? Because even in Latin America, indigenous cultures are kind of created to be consumed, right? Like for instance, the Mexica, the Aztec history where people say, oh, I can consume that and go to, you know, these touristic attractions in Mexico and kind of get that, you know, the past civilization experience when in reality, you know, they're still present day indigenous peoples. And I think that one of the questions that I get is oftentimes by non-indigenous peoples is how can they include or incorporate indigenous science into their work? And I think that, you know, part of what I continue to advocate for is that we cannot consume indigenous knowledge, especially if you do not come from an indigenous communities, because indigenous science cannot be separated from the person, from the individual. And I think that when we look at indigenous science, at the core center of indigenous science is our spirituality, right? But yet going back to spirituality, it's something that has been marketed for us to consume as well, right? You can buy, you know, 
certifications to be a spiritual guide and things like that. But I think that with indigenous science, it's important that everybody understands that indigenous science cannot be separated from the person or individual. And in order for us to truly incorporate indigenous science, that means making more space at the table for indigenous peoples to either you know, take a seat at the table and be heard and being listened to, not just take up a seat or also lead those tables so that, you know, we stop thinking that we have a right to consume other ways of knowing other people's lived experiences. Because I think that, you know, in reality, if people are trying to consume Indigenous science, they're trying to, in a way, co-opt, you know, lived experiences knowledge systems that are very, you know, that are place-based. And I think that, you know, it goes back to what you're saying, that's very tied to capitalism where, you know, everything is up for consumption. And because, you know, we are from the United States, we kind of have this right to consume anything that we want, right? Without any repercussions, without any questioning of our intentions and so on. Yeah, it, it, it very much ties back to, and I think you mentioned this at the beginning, but I also jotted it down in the notes that, we should never take more than we need, mm -hmm. right? Which is in complete opposition to the capitalist model, which is just consume as much as you want. Yeah. And it's a never ending fountain, right? And the indigenous science part, I want to I want to stay there for a while because you you mentioned the spirituality element to it. And in quote unquote European sciences and Western yeah. sciences, whatever other language you want to use, the science is designed to be in opposition to what is spiritual, right? The science yeah. is supposed to give us quote unquote answers to things we don't know, right? Whereas when when I took away, and if I didn't read it right, like feel free to course correct me here, that there when you tell the story about about your father and the banana leaf tree, that is something beyond the explanation of our known world as we perceive it, right? Yeah. But yet it is an experience that is very real and saved his life and resulted now in you, right? <laughs> and on all these yeah. other things. So how do we think through that balance of incorporating the unknown in a science practice when Western worlds would say, well, this is what I'm trying to solve for, right? I'm solving for the unknown. And whereas like, it reads to me like there's an embracing of the unknown as almost a given to our lived experiences, if that jumble kind of made sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And I think that one of the things that I'm always kind of fascinated by is that when we look at the history of science, there was a spiritual component into the foundations of many theories. Like for instance, right now my work is kind of focused more on environmental physics. And when you look at all these physicists, when they created, you know, concepts like energy, quantum physics, all these theories, it was kind of like a political how would I say that, like a movement against a certain religion that was kind of oppressing their spirituality and their, you know, spiritual beliefs during that time. And I always wonder when in our time frame did science, you know, like you were mentioning, become so like objective that, you know, this these histories that are grounded in the spirituality of those philosophers or those, you know, founders of many scientific disciplines became something that's very hidden and ignored, right? Because for instance, when we look at the concept of energy, energy was created by physicists to kind of build steamships, especially during the British Industrial Revolution, to in a way, you know, promote colonialism of the Americas. Yet when you look at physics, when you teach energy, that history is far removed, even though that history is very tied to colonialism, right? Because physics and like you mentioned in other sciences, try to be objective because, you know, if you're subjective, then it's no longer science. And, you know, it, it makes it it's a fascinating discussion, right? Because if we were to look at many concepts in Western sciences, theories, frameworks or philosophies, they're all incorporated into a spirituality. And, 
you know, it always makes me wonder when was that not the case anymore? Was it when, you know, the American identity became, you know, created where, you know, you had to assimilate and leave your European ancestry behind? Or, you know, what, what was it that turned turn around the science, you know, integration of spirituality? Yeah, it's 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 a, a tough one, but you know, I think when you're thinking about that history of the sciences, it it made me think also of the the history of kind of jumping forward to something a little bit more modern base of of the conservation movement, right? Yeah. Like this again is a history that I I find somewhat obscured, right? Like most people and again I'm painting broad brush here, right? Most people would say, "Oh, conservation, that's a great thing." Like Everyone should be in favor of that. But yet when you kind of go beneath the surface, right? And that, you know, I would argue you don't even have to go that far beneath the surface. There's, again, these roots that exist there that should have us call into question the basis under which it was formulated, right? There's roots of displacement. There's there's racist roots of who owns and controls the the land that, that we're on. So... How have your experiences been with exposing, for lack of a better word, that type of history that lives within the conservation movement because it is so tied to the work that you do as an indigenous scientist? I think that when you bring up those type of histories, especially, you know, those oppressive histories, there is this sense of, well, I'm not responsible for that or I shouldn't be held accountable for that because that was in the past, right? But in order for us to elevate racial justice, environmental justice, social justice, climate justice, anything that's rooted in justice, we have to grapple with these realities that are rooted in our histories, as you mentioned. And I think that, you know, looking at conservation, the establishment of national parks for, you know, in order for national parks to have been established, indigenous peoples were violently displaced from their lands, right? Because they didn't want to leave their ancestral lands because, you know, their their ancestral lands hold on to that spiritual connection to their history since time immemorial. But yet, you know, there was this violence enacted against them. When we look at many conservation projects, we continue to remove humans from nature. So sometimes we end up jeopardizing livelihoods of the local communities of that conservation project. And I think that, you know, it it all ties back to those roots, or as you mentioned, the history of conservation, where we, you know, it was created to remove humans from nature and also do it at any cost, right? Whether it was, you know, killing off a community or displacing an entire population, they were never questioned. And I think that it's important for people to not be as against it because, you know, like I mentioned, there is an accountability piece that needs to be taken, also a responsibility piece that needs to be upheld. But many people always say like, oh, it's in the past. How, how are we responsible for that? When in reality, we're still upholding ourselves, these systems that continue to oppress, you know, communities of color. And in this cases, you know, Black and Indigenous communities that are, you know, kind of like the first communities that were impacted because of colonization and the building of, you know, the United States as we know it today. And I want to talk about eco-colonialism because this was a term that was a new term for me, right? And you went to great lengths within the book, kind of walking through the myriad ways in which that impacts these types of conversations. You know, it's white people governing over resources. It's altering of of landscapes and it's it's lack of resources and you know this seems like it's a persistent and almost normalized way in which so much of of modern sustainability works right like no one really questions white people running stuff right you know or or who's doling out the money right like you said grants become such a big part of this right who gets them who doesn't right why did you think it was it was so necessary to like hammer those points home in the telling of of this story around indigenous sciences yeah because i wanted to make the point that despite white people governing you know our environmental landscapes or environments 
80% of the world's biodiversity is still stewarded and caretaken by indigenous peoples. And 50% of the world's biodiversity is currently located in Latin America, which is the deadliest place for indigenous environmental leaders. And I think that when we look at, you know, we want to look through the data, you know, through the science and the data to kind of, in a way, support our claims, we need to center indigenous peoples because, you know, eco-colonialism, white people governing our natural resources is not working, right? Because we're still facing biodiversity loss. And yet when indigenous peoples are not necessarily holding that power and privilege, they're still successfully storing 80% of our world's biodiversity. And I think that hopefully that makes people question why is it that, you know, having white men, you know, lead our environmental movement, govern our natural resources is not working. And I think that hopefully, you know, that brings into the question that we need to include indigenous communities at the table and also kind of in a way, allow them to steward and caretake of, you know, of our biodiversity, because clearly they're doing a good job while, you know, white men and white people are not. And hopefully, you know, that's something that people can start questioning, especially when, you know, we hear that stats being thrown around. But yet I don't think people are really understanding what's behind that stats. Right. Like, OK, so if indigenous peoples don't have don't hold power and privilege, they're still being oppressed. Why is it that they're successfully storing 80% of the world's biodiversity? And what does that tell us about, you know, the way that we do conservation, environmental protection from the white gaze, right? Why is it that it's failing when, you know, indigenous peoples are still being able to store this much of a percentage of the world's biodiversity? Absolutely. And, you know, as you were going through that that point, it it made me think about the the piece you you talk about with environmental justice and ecological debt. And again, that was an, another, you know, you mentioned this, the stats, which were new to me and impacted me a lot when I was reading the book. And, but this notion of, of ecological debt was also a, a frame that I hadn't really considered before. And I think both of them put together do a really amazing job of, you know, really setting the stage for the high stakes that currently exist. Like we're not, these are not philosophical questions. These are the way I read it. They're very life and death questions, yeah. both from cultures on the ground who are facing these challenges in the present, right? So climate change, climate disruptions are not theoreticals for many people. They're present day realities, yeah. much less the way we need to think about our ecological future on on the planet, right? So kind of walk, walk us through a little bit of ecological debt and how that connects to, but is distinct from the way we think about environmental justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the way that I define ecological debt is the reality that despite us, you know, indigenous communities, Black communities, not necessarily being responsible, going back to that responsibility and accountability for having worsened climate change impacts, our communities are the ones that are mostly impacted negatively, right? And when it comes to getting those resources to lead climate change adaptation strategies or mitigation strategies, our communities are always forgotten, right? For many of our people, it's not a choice to become a climate justice advocate because you know it's a life or death decision. It's not a choice to lead an environmental justice movement because again it's a life and death decision. But yet, you know, these these personas of you know becoming an environmental justice advocate or climate justice advocate continue to be used to benefit certain people, right? Certain people who don't have to face the, these life or death situations. And, you know, they're, you know, gaining something from it, right? Because it's either, you know, the social, you know, media influencer persona or they're gaining, you know, these popularity where they're the experts where in reality there's so many of our community members who are leading these movements on the ground because they have no choice. Yet when it comes to passing the mic so that they can actually be amplified, you know, their knowledges or lived experiences, no one is passing the mic to them because either one, they don't have any Western education or training that makes their knowledge or experiences credible, or two, they don't have the economic resources to be able to elevate 
their movements. And I think that, you know, if you are able to gain some type of privilege or positionality or power from building these personas as an environmental justice advocate or climate justice advocate, we also have to be held responsible for passing the mic, for elevating these voices. And I think that um, that's just the way that I, you know, I was raised because, you know, I, I acknowledge that, you know, having a PhD grants me privilege. But, you know, my father, you know, the first thing that he told me when I, you know, told him, oh, I passed my dissertation defense was that, oh, this means that you have more responsibilities coming your way to elevate our community voices, to pass the mic so that their stories can actually be, you know, listened to or hurt for the first time. And I think that through this book, it was something that I was aiming for, right? And for me, it was elevating Indigenous women voices. And that's why I center a lot of Indigenous women testimonies and also centering the knowledge that my father passed down to me, especially when we talk about the Central American Civil War, there's this Indigenous history that's still erased. Like, I think the only first Indigenous story or, you know, perspective that we heard was from Rigoberta Menchu, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, and yet other historical accounts come from the white gaze, right, or from the non-Indigenous gaze. And I think that's important for, you know, for us who have those power and positionalities, even if we embody the same lived experiences or identities to pass the mic and also amplify stories that are, you know, still hidden or not necessarily that people focus on, right, because it's not the type of person they want to focus on, right? Because they don't have any Western credentials or any social media platforms that they, you know, actually want to uplift or support in that sense. Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, I, I want to ask one more question before I get to the final two segments of the show. You know, the time always flies back and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm always in danger of going on too long. Um, so I want to be mindful of that. But you know, in your last response, you you mentioned, you know, revealing histories that that haven't been told, haven't been focused on. You hearken back to your dad's stories. You know, you share, like you said, many testimonies throughout the book, particularly from Indigenous women and their stories and their their knowledge. And what what strikes me beyond the the obvious interdisciplinary systems and thinking that's embedded in the book that it's also an intergenerational story, right? It's a it's a story that weaves many generations together to to get to this point. So indigenous history is very much alive, right? It's a it's a present day thing. And you know, early in our conversation we talked about what it what it shouldn't be just viewed as, right? Like this kind of idea of vulnerability, resistance, resilience, you know, as we go out before the final two segments, where would you want, you know, all of us to focus when we think about indigenous sciences, indigenous history and an indigenous future? Like what what are the three or four points that we should be focused on rather than the way we, what we emphasize right now? Yeah, I think one of the things that we focus on, um, we should focus on, and I think I put it as my dedication page, is that, you know, it's time for us to write our own stories instead of our stories being written for us. It's, you know, time for us to tell our own stories instead of our stories being told for us. Because I think that when the latter happens, right, when our stories are written for us, especially coming from a non-Indigenous or a person who's not from our communities, or when our stories are told for us also from the same you know, people, they're told wrong or they're written incorrectly, right? And I think that, you know, when we look at Indigenous futures, we're seeing how, you know, in our time frame, you know, past scholars and past Indigenous advocates have broken those barriers for us to be able to write our own stories, right? Because, you know, for instance, when I look at Fresh Banana Leaves, the book, it was probably a book that wouldn't have been accepted or published you know, 10 years ago, because it wasn't something that people wanted to see, right? They wanted, you know, to rather see a white man, you know, write our stories instead of our stories being told for us. And when I look at many, you know, books or peer review articles that were published on my communities, I also see how there's a lot of misinformation that's, you know, portrayed there, how there's this romanticization, as we were discussing, 
portrayed there, how there's these misunderstandings of racial categories or construct social constructions in Latin America being amplified. And I think that, you know, it's it's a privilege, right, to be able to speak English or write in English because I was able to translate a lot of our my relatives or community members' stories from their native languages to Spanish, then to English. And I think that, you know, it's hopefully it's a time in our you know generation to keep pushing for us to tell our own stories instead of our stories being told or written for us because you know that ends up harming our communities more than actually doing good and you know there are people in our communities who don't want to tell their stories or write their stories because you know they're like oh you know why tell my story you know at the end of the day people are going to still romanticize it but I think that you know for every one person who romanticizes your story there's like 10 indigenous youth who are celebrating, you know, being seen or heard for the first time, right? Because even today, the books that are, you know, indigenous scholarship that's written by indigenous peoples, you know, it's it's limited. And I think that that applies to many communities of color. And hopefully that's the indigenous futures that, you know, that we see how we're not necessarily going to be talked about our vulnerability, right? From somebody who's not from our community or our resistance or resilience is going to be the focus of it, but rather our own perspectives that go beyond, you know, just in, again, putting us in boxes so that, you know, the white audience can consume our narratives instead of us telling our own narratives, the ways that we want, right? Because, I mean, obviously as indigenous peoples, you have a right to also focus on vulnerability and resilience if that's what you choose to do. But, you know, it's different than when a white person decides to focus on that, which seems to be like the three main categories that, you know, every indigenous story written about us or article focuses on even today. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's a that's a great way to put it, right? There's a lot more stories to be told, you know, yeah. and we're desperately in need of them and, and looking forward to them. You know, as promised, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you mm -hmm. on someone on time. So we're gonna jump to the first segment of our final two segments of the show, which is off the dome. And these are just super easy, first thing that comes to the mind kind of questions. So you're obviously someone who shared a lot of stories, you've done a ton of scholarly work. If there's anyone in history scholar otherwise that you would have loved that you would love to collaborate with who would that person be mm -hmm. yes i would probably say one of my ancestors just because i want to see like the differences that you know they embodied or they lived through and how you know our stories have changed because oftentimes you know we we don't have much of our written records of our ancestors so we it's mostly storytelling but you know we don't know as you know factual information Okay, that's awesome. Looking back, right? Getting some more information from the past. You know, not related, but it is a concept that comes up a lot in the book, which is this idea of place, right? That so much of our knowledge is, is place-based, so much of that is tied to where we belong. So having kind of thinking about that framework, what's like one of your favorite places where you feel like you're really anchored and feel that feeling, that feeling of belonging really sits there? Yeah, I would say my mother's childhood home that's still in our family where, you know, my grandmother, my great grandmother, they all raised their children. So I feel like even though we don't have like running water or we don't have like, you know, restrooms like we do in the United States, it's still something that, you know, keeps me grounded to the histories that, you know, that place kind of maintains even today. Absolutely. And this is this is my final one. And this one's super easy. You know, if you had to think of giving up either your phone or food for 24 hours, which one are you going to go with? I would say my phone because I have um, been able to do that before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I get a lot of sugar, blood sugar, okay. <laughs> and I have faint or something. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> so blood sugar wins over phone. Yeah, over phone. Yeah. I don't like those feelings when my blood sugar drops. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Get, getting rid of the phone for 24 yeah, hours or even 24. longer is probably... Yeah. We could probably yeah. all use a little bit of that. Blood sugar, not so much. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's like uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm going to get to the final segment of the show, which is called The Drop. And The Drop is just a recommendation, could be anything at all that our listeners should be aware of. So I'll go first. And my drop is, is actually a, a musical artist. And even though I didn't watch the Grammys at the time that we're having this conversation, the Grammys was yesterday. So maybe I'm just musically 
inclined right now. But um, there's a, a British artist, Cleo Soul. She has two albums of her own. The first one is called Rose in the Dark. That was released in 2020. And the more recent record is called Mother. That was 2021. She's also part of the R&B UK collective called Salt. Um, amazing artist, someone that you know, I've been listening to and have loved over these past few years. It's been really comforting pandemic music um, in, in a lot of ways. And so my drop is checking out Cleo Soul, both her work with Salt and her two solo albums. And the drop is up to you now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to that, when we were, when I saw the Grammys for like a little bit of time, I really um, fell in love with this Afro-Latina um, artist. I think her name is Aimed. Nubiola. Um, she had one of the the really small segments that she didn't perform on stage. She kind of per- performed outside of stage. And I think that, you know, that we should celebrate more of our Afro-Latino and Afro-Indigenous artists, right? Because a lot of the music that comes from Latin America actually comes from Black and Afro-Indigenous communities that lived, you know, and continue to hold histories in Latin America. So I think that would be my job to see, to listen to more of her music because that really, um, you know, made the Grammys a little bit more different than what we're used to, especially, you know, nowadays with the yeah, music and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So now, see, that's a drop for me, too, because I, I didn't watch. So I didn't see that. So now I'm going to check out that artist, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. Already your drop has touched one person. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to thank you again for for being on the show. The, the book is, like I said at the very beginning, and I want to compound that point. This is a must read. Any any serious person that is focused on these issues around around justice, around our environment, around our future should should read Fresh Banana Leaves. I can't recommend it enough. It's it, I'm glad I got the opportunity to read it. Um, I always tell people I'm in this for the books and the conversation, and this one didn't let me down. So I want to <laughs> I want to thank you again for being on a deep dive with me. Yeah, thank you for welcoming me and also for the recommendation, right? Because it means a lot. Because you know, oftentimes when we are writing books, we we question ourselves, who am I writing this book for? And, you know, it's it's people like you who are willing to listen and also reflect on, right? Especially given that many of our Black and Indigenous histories intersect, even though we still, you know, they're still separated more than they're actually interconnected at times. Yeah, well, our, our goal is to connect them more and more. And we're, yeah. and we're doing that on this show. So thanks again for joining me. Yeah, thank you again. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.